If you'd open up your Bible to the book of Matthew, we're going to be continuing in Matthew chapter 1. This morning we'll focus on verse 20 of that chapter, but we're going to read the, uh, the relevant section, and uh, I want to um, take a moment to read that, and then we are going to pray. So, uh, Matthew chapter 1. Verse 18 is where we will begin. As we do that, as we, um, as we read and then we pray before we turn to God's word, we're going to pray for the uh, Aurora people of India, four million people who do not know the Lord and uh, who need someone to take the gospel to them. So we will lift them up before the Lord as we pray. The scripture says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can hear your word, and as we hear it, We know that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by your word. And so we pray that that these words would reach into our soul and our spirit as your Holy Spirit does its mysterious work applying the words. And we pray that faith would grow and that gracious, godly behavior would result. And then we think of the Aurora people, Lord, four million who have your word and yet do not know you. It's not a matter of ignoring it. It's a matter of not having ever considered it because there are none who are taking the message to them. We pray that by your grace, you would raise up workers to share the gospel among that people. We pray that by your grace and for your glory, that we would be among those who'd be able to contribute to the work among these people, Lord, and if not these, then among some who need to hear the gospel. And Father, we pray that you would give us open mouths and willing spirits to share the gospel with those who need it. We pray that that we would embody the message to them, that we would be willing to take it to them. As we turn to your word, Lord, we thank you for the fact that you embodied your message. When it came time to forgive humanity's sins, you took on flesh and entered into the world 
uh, becoming the message. Father, you sent your son to become a man, to take sin upon himself and to die. We thank you for that, Lord. As we contemplate the mystery of, of how that took place, we pray that we would not walk away thinking that we understand your work, for surely when it comes to the conception and incarnation of Jesus, we understand some details but don't understand the work. But we pray that as we see and hear of your Son, that we would, one, be appreciative of that work, and two, that the work of, of Christ, of being remade in his image, would be born in our hearts, and that we would then take that message to those who need to hear it and live for your glory and for your joy. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, a number of years ago, I was working at, a, um, at the Department of Public Works in my hometown. It was a summer job. I had decided to leave college uh, for the first time. I eventually went back to college and did get some degrees. So um, I, uh, I left this uh, lawn cutting business, which was just a seasonal thing, and I, I landed on the, the first job that I could find at a, a print shop at a place called Major printing where I worked in the bindery uh, doing post-press stuff. When a sheet of paper comes out of the printing press, it probably needs to be cut, folded. Sometimes it needs to have holes drilled in it. It needs to be counted, shrink-wrapped, boxed. Um, uh, order form needs to be made up and it needs to be delivered. And I did all of that stuff. Uh, I had two bosses in the print shop, uh, John Stampone Sr. and Joseph Stampone, his oldest son, and his son, Joe, was the front office guy. He was the boss. I mean, he was the heir apparent, and so he was in charge. And when people would call about bills and about products and about, can you help me with this, Joe was the one who would handle things. And so I didn't really see what he did. He was running stuff. He was in the front office. I was in the, the back of the shop. And Joe was taking care of things, selling and, and handling complaints and doing all that. He'd come out of the front office and he'd say, can you go and take this package to somebody? Or, or can you go pick something up? You know, or go um, and handle this matter? And I would do what he told me. He was a good man. He was my, my boss. And I, I liked him. His dad, John Sr., who was the CEO, owner, um, would eventually be handing the company over to his, his children he served kind of as the general manager, and, and John was everywhere in the print shop. You know, as, as things were coming off the printing press, he was inspecting and telling the print guy, you can do better on this. He'd be, he'd be looking over the artwork as things were planning to go to press. He'd be checking every detail. Is the, is the paper cutter knife sharp, sharp? Is the folder working properly? But it wasn't just that he was in the business. It was everything that I was expected to do, folding, drilling, cutting. This man knew that the volume of work that we were doing was so great that I would not be able to keep up with it. Rather than hiring somebody else, he jumped in and would do the work himself. Cutting, folding, stapling, drilling holes, wrapping things, even doing deliveries on his way home. He worked harder and more hours than I did. And he was a good man too. But, the, but I loved him. I, I knew him and he knew me and he knew my job and, and we would share, even though we were not equals, we'd share the work evenly. 
I could identify with him, even though he was my boss and he was older and he was more experienced. He took on my job alongside of me and helped me. As we turn to this passage, we're going to take a look at the incarnation of Jesus. And as we do, I believe it will help us to understand how he identifies with us and how we identify with him and then how we ought to identify with other people and what that ought to look like in our Christian life. When we come to the doctrine of the incarnation, we have several passages we can choose from. But Matthew one twenty says that Joseph is told that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Jesus is, is coming from the Father. He is coming into the world. He is being conceived inside of Mary and is becoming a human being. Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the angel Gabriel, likely the same angel who's speaking to Joseph, says... To Mary, uh, when she wonders, how is this possible that I'm going to have this child? Um, the, the, Holy, the, the angel tells her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. What we have going on here when we're told that, that Jesus is going to enter into the world is there's, there's several things happening here. It's all, all can be summed up under the idea of incarnation, but we have a a, a mystery that we cannot understand going on here. A, A being who is the chiefest and best of all beings, God, in in the, the second person of his nature, of his being, is entering into the world. The Father still exists and the Spirit still exists and they are one deity, but they are distinct persons, and the Son is entering into the world, bringing his fully divine nature with him, and that divine nature is being wedded or connected to a human nature. Jesus isn't 50% God and 50% man. He is fully God and fully man, and the two are becoming one here in this being, not intermixed, but connected. How does that work? I, I don't know. There's another thing going on here, and that's uh, a section of Jesus' ministry, and we, we call that, theologians call that, the, the ministry or, or the, the humiliation of Jesus. That may sound bad, and part of it is negative. Um, like, it's not like how, the doctrine of humiliation is not like either how to humiliate people or how to embarrass them, but it's this, this first part of the arc of Jesus' life, this downward slope of events as he leaves glory, embraces human flesh, takes on the limitations of being a human being, and then as he teaches and lives this godly, righteous life, he's rejected by men, and ultimately he suffers and dies on the cross. As he, as he goes into the tomb, the other half of the ark is what you could call the doctrine of exaltation, as he is raised and he, um, he, he, it, it, he goes in, back into heaven in his ascension, and then he reigns on the throne. He will eventually come and reign, and then forever will experience glory amidst the church in heaven and in eternity. The humiliation of Christ involves his humbling of himself, his being born, his embracing our flesh in our low condition, 
His becoming obedient to the law, embracing the pain of life, the wrath of God and death on the cross. The cross considered by the Jewish people in the law of God to be a death cursed by God and the worst of deaths to die. As I've, as I've thought through this, I was just wonderfully helped by the Puritan Thomas Watson. And you'll probably hear me say Watson several times throughout this message. This is what he says. Christ's humiliation consists in his incarnation, his taking flesh and being born. This entire stage of Jesus' ministry is lived in the flesh. There was not one instant in eternity where he had any limitation. And not one moment since his resurrection has he been limited at all. Only while he was born and went to the cross was he in this place. Galatians 4.4 4 describes this time by saying, when the fullness of time had come, that is at the right moment, when, when God's plan had reached a point where it was filled up perfectly, God sent forth his son. That's the power of the Holy Spirit at work in, in Matthew 1.20 and in Luke 1.35. And Jesus was born of a woman, born under law. Thomas Watson says, in the creation, man was made in God's image. But in the incarnation, God was made in man's image. How does this work? I think a simple answer is to say we don't know anything other than what we've been told. The, the Holy Spirit is at work, and, and the power of, of God the Father is at work, and a child is conceived within inside of, of Mary beyond the, the normal means of conception, and that child then grows and becomes the God-man Jesus. His human nature coming from his mother, 100% of it, and his divine nature coming from his father, and the two wedded together. How does it work? We do not know. Watson turns to the question of why is he born of a woman? I thought this was interesting. Oh, this is an interesting question, one that I had not asked myself. Uh, his first answer is kind of obvious. Why does Jesus need to be born of a woman? The first reason is everyone is born of a woman, but born of woman means not without the help of a man. And that's the reason why is to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15, that this would be a distinct, unique child. In Genesis 3.15, we're told that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. I found his, his second reason for why Jesus was born of a woman to be uh, amazing and encouraging. Uh, I've thought throughout the years that there are times when people use the Bible to say dumb things about women. Um, I've heard some pastors who I think are, are unwise and who are maybe uh, stepping beyond the bounds of Scripture and certainly not what is observable in the world when they say things like um, women are more prone to temptation or they're more foolish based on 1 Timothy 2.14. It's just, it's never made any sense to me. I don't think it stands up under Bible interpretation. I've heard the passing comment that humanity is in the mess we're in because Adam listened to his wife. Or that the Bible teaches that women are to be blamed for our troubles. I think most of this uh, is, is written by unmarried monks in the medieval period. That's where most of this comes from. What do they know anyway? But I've wondered before and thought about the New Testament. I've thought about the role of Eve. And the fact that the effect of her role in the fall isn't really 
clarified to my satisfaction in the New Testament, while Adam's role seems to be mentioned in a few key places, like Romans 5, right? That, that sin entered the world through one man, Adam, right? That's, that's what's being said there. Um, and then Thomas Watson says this, and it's just, I thought this was so helpful. He says this, Christ was born of a woman that he might roll away the reproach from the woman, which she had contracted by being seduced by the serpent. Christ, in taking his flesh from the woman, has honored her. That is, at the first, the woman had made mankind. He uses the word man, but I think he means mankind. That is, at the first, the woman had made mankind a sinner. So now, to make mankind amends, she brings forth for him a savior. I just, I think that's so helpful when we think about um, who we are as people in the image of God, male and female created in the image of God. That's how God created us, of equal value and dignity and worth. The Savior would be the Son of God, receiving his divine nature from the Father, and he would be the Son of David as Mary is born in uh, David's line, and, and Joseph is the heir to David's throne, and he adopts him legally. But here he is uniquely born of a woman, and that leaves no doubt as to the equal value and role of women in God's eyes. I thought that was very helpful. So how, how does the incarnation happen? This is the last time I'm going to ask this question. Uh, we don't know. We don't know other than what we've been told. Um, we don't know how the two natures connect and yet remain separate. We don't know how the human nature of Mary, she is not perfect. We see her um, do some things that, that, that oppose Jesus' ministry in her lifetime in the Gospels. We don't know how her, her nature, which is sinful like all other human beings, is not transmitted to the human nature of Christ. We don't know that. But we do know what we've been told, that the Father and the Holy Spirit are at work there. We just don't know how that work happens. This is a deep mystery. Somebody might say, I don't believe in things that I don't understand. I would say that is foolish. I know how the remote control works, you know? I point the remote control with the, with the, the little light bulb end towards the television. I press the power button and it shuts off, right? That's how the remote control works but I don't understand how the television knows what it's being told by the remote control. I just, I just use it. I don't understand um, how a drug can stop cancer from replicating, but I know it is useful and ought to be used. God knows the answer. And as we consider the matter, we ought to bow in humility and acknowledge that even when we understand how this works one day in heaven, we will be able to admit that it was still unique and we could not have done it ourselves. So let's ask the question, what does the incarnation of Christ, this, this, un, or this unique conception, teach us? What does, the, what does the incarnation of Jesus, what does the fact that he was sent and, and conceived by the woman what does it teach us? Several things. One, it teaches us about the depths of God's free grace. It teaches us about the depths of God's grace toward us. We read in the Bible of the love of God the Father in sending the Son. Romans 5 says that one will hardly die for a righteous person who would give up their life to save the life of another. Some 
though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16 says God loved the world. God so loved the world. Some people say that means that God loved the world so much. That's not the way to read that. It's, it's, not, it's not a, uh, a word of emphasis. It's a word of, of pointing out God loved the world in this way. That he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The incarnation shows the love of God the Father, but the Son was not unwilling. The love of the Son is demonstrated in that he came to take on flesh. The infinite love of Christ is demonstrated in that he was willing to lay aside equality with God, the free use of his divine rights, and take on our flesh to be our substitute. Thomas Watson says, if he had not been incarnated, we would have had to be incarcerated forever. I love that. I love this guy. He's just so, he's so good with his words. Um, when Jesus enters into the world and takes on flesh, the angel goes to the shepherds and says, behold, I bring you good news of great joy. God sends angels to celebrate the coming of the son because their savior has been born. And I think some of the shepherds were probably just like, cool, the son of David, like we got to see that, but they don't know what it means. Not yet. Ephesians 5.25 says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul says in Galatians 2.20 that the life he now lives in the flesh, he lives by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Augustine, that uh, early church father, says it's not our deserts, it's not our good qualities right? I thought that was an interesting use of the word dessert, right? It's the good thing that happens after the meal is eaten. For kids, it's like vegetables gone, you know, main portion gone, now on to the fun. Um, It's not our desserts, but our misery that made Christ take flesh. Christ's taking flesh was a plot of free grace and a pure design of love. God himself, though almighty, was overcome with love. Christ incarnate is nothing but love covered with flesh. As Christ's assuming our human nature was a masterpiece of wisdom, so it was a moment of free grace. Thomas Watson again. To whom did he come? Was it to his friends? No. He came to sinful man. Man that had defaced his image and abused his love. Man who had turned rebel. And yet he came to man resolving to overcome obstinacy with kindness. Martin Luther points out that he took, this is a second lesson here, that he took our flesh that he might take our sins upon him. Martin Luther, the German reformer, said that Jesus was the greatest sinner. Now you you, you hear that, right? And you run over the speed bump in your mind. Like, no, that's not true. He was like us, made like us in every way and yet without sin. But what Luther is pointing out here is that when Jesus comes, made in the likeness of sinful flesh, as it says in Romans 8.3, that the weight of all of our sins would be placed on him and therefore he would be counted as the worst of sinners. And therefore, faith in that work is his greatest, uh, is, is what we 
produce. That's what, that's what we're called to do in response to his great work, to believe that he's our God-pleasing, wrath-satisfying substitute. And that is what saves us. I love this point that Watson makes. This is another lesson about the incarnation. He says that Jesus took our nature so that human nature might appear lovely to God and that the divine nature would appear lovely to us. He took on flesh so that our nature might appear lovely to God. The truth is that human nature is repulsive to God. The book of Habakkuk says that that God's eyes are too pure to look upon sin. And so I was thinking about gross things. You know, what is it that that really repels me? There was this time I called uh, Brian Orr and I I said, you got to come to the church office. Like, I can't even go inside. Like, something's dead or something. I can't even stand. My stomach is just turning. Um, I I, I had to leave the building. And he went in and he went into the refrigerator and there was like some rotten salad or something in there. But I was just like, I am sure that there is a dead animal in the building somewhere. And I couldn't even, I couldn't, I couldn't move into the building. Um, I, I once, when I was working that lawn cutting job, some guys on the job put me up to putting a for sale sign on my boss's lawn. And um, don't do it, guys. <laughs> so my boss then, he made me ride in the, uh, the garbage truck. Not your average garbage truck, but this was one that had like, uh, it had probably 9 to 12 you know, big 50-gallon garbage drums in the back of it. And what we would do, me and this guy Joe, we would drive from park to park and clean up the garbage on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays. That meant this was the first time the garbage cans had been emptied since Friday in the summer. And so there was this moment when I was emptying, you know, you take the lid off and you pull the little can that's inside the can out and then you dump that into the larger can. You learn the technique really fast once you get garbage on yourself. And there are maggots and old juice and food and stuff everywhere. Human nature is more nauseating to God than that. If it were possible for God to retch or for his skin to crawl, it would when he considers human nature. And that's why his wrath is against sin, because sin is repugnant to him, and therefore he must destroy it. But when Jesus puts on our flesh, he makes human nature shine. What does God say of him six times in the gospel? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Because he's our mediator, 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus comes in the spirit of his own message. Matthew 5.9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. He is the peacemaker. He is the son of God. And so he doesn't just make our human nature appear lovely to God, but what he does is he makes the divine nature appear pleasing to man. The Jews at Sinai, hearing the voice of God thundering from the top of the mountain, were terrified, and they asked Moses to stand in their place and to not allow God to speak to them anymore, but that Moses would speak. Isaiah was terrified in the temple when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. He didn't write a praise song. He was mortified. John 
saw the Lord. He saw God on his throne in heaven and fell down dead in the presence of the angels. But when Jesus comes, little children and tax collectors and lepers and sinners and all kinds of people were attracted to him. They wanted to know him. They wanted to to be loved by him and they wanted to be around him because he made the divine nature appear pleasing to man. And what does the Bible say about Jesus? It says that he is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. Everything that we love about Jesus is true of the Father. And therefore, we love about Jesus and we say, why can't God the Father be more like that? He can't be any more like that. He is that. They are alike. We learn from the incarnation the wonder of Jesus' humility. Philippians 2, 6 says that though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped or something to be held on to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was made in the likeness of men. He embraced weakness, many different kinds, hunger at the fig tree, weariness at the well and in the boat when he fell asleep, sorrow in the garden. And he lived as one who feared God, not a terrified, petrified, servile fear, but an honoring of the Father and obeying of his commandments. That's what Hebrews 5, 7 says. But I believe the greatest indignity that he took upon himself in humility was that he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. Romans 8, 3 says that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. I believe that means to be counted as a sinner, and that's how God condemned sin in the flesh, by sending his son and saying, put on this set of of clothes, take this nature upon yourself. Jesus didn't come in his resurrected, glorified, like move through walls, you know, know, move really fast like he does at the end of the Gospels. He didn't come in that nature, a perfected human. He came as a perfect human looking just like us. His appearance gave no hint of his perfection, and his friends didn't do him any uh, help in terms of, of enhancing his reputation of perfection. In fact, they called him the friend of sinners. We learn also from the incarnation about the way that God works in terms of impossibilities. Jesus was born of a virgin, This isn't just odd, folks, right? This is not possible. This doesn't happen. This is is inconceivable to many. It's not just strange or, or different, like, you know, that the cicadas come out every 17 years or that we have an El Nino year every now and again. It doesn't happen. But The Bible teaches there are no impossibilities with God. We find this in Matthew 19.26, Mark 10.27, Luke 1.37. Luke 18.27 says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so we will ask the question, can God really heal me of my illness? How, How can he put my body back together after the resurrection if I will decompose? How can he save my spouse or my child? How can he soften my heart and change me? 
How can he lead me out of this present distress? The answer is nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for God. Remember the the story of the feeding of the 5,000, right? There's no food. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And they say, where are we going to get food? And Jesus is like, really? You know, he's saying, I'm right here. Ask me for food and I'll give it to you. And he says, well, what do you have? And they say, five loaves and two fish. You know, they pulled off some kid who was like, that's my lunch, you know. Um, maybe he was like, I mean, I, I like that he's like, here, Jesus, I think that, that, that but we, that's, we don't have that necessarily, although they say they did find a boy, you know, maybe he's like running away, like, don't take my lunch. Um, so, so what happens is Jesus begins to feed the 5,000, right, and he's taking this stuff, and he's, he's breaking it, and, and, hand, and they're handing it out, right, and when it's all done, remember, they start with five loaves and two fish in a little lunch sack from some kid who was trying to run away, and at the very end, when they gather up all the fragments, because the disciples always clean up after themselves, and that's what disciples of Jesus should do. What do they do? They're each standing there, and Jesus is like, did you have enough to eat? And they're like, yeah, we're full. And he's like, what do you have in your hands? And each one of them has a basket left of fragments. That's not possible, folks. But nothing's impossible for God. Thomas Watson says, let us rest upon, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Jeremiah 32, 17. Jeremiah says, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And then Watson says, let us rest upon the arm of God's power and believe in him in the midst of seeming impossibilities. Seeing that Jesus was born in flesh. Seeing that God made the effort to send him into the world. And seeing that Jesus took the burden of purchasing our salvation upon himself. We ought to make every effort to see him born in our hearts. Some people don't like that. Uh, that, that phrase, you know, invite Jesus into your heart or, you know, to have Jesus living in your heart. Ephesians 3.17, is, Paul is speaking about the fact that, um, that, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And so I do think it's biblical language, although you may have heard the story of the little kid, you know, who says uh, to the doctor, I have something in my heart, you know, and the doctor's like, really, what? And he's like, it's Jesus, he's in there, you know. I mean, kids believe that kind of stuff. That was supposed to be funny. Um, (laughs) Since he went to such great lengths to purchase salvation, should we not reach out to him and believe in him as our savior if we have not? And should we also not regularly humble ourselves and say, it is not me, it is not what I have done, it is not what I have accomplished, it is what he has accomplished for me that counts. And revisit and replow the ground and break up the hardness of our hearts that emerges over time and say, yes, he is a good and gracious savior. Watson closes with this point about the incarnation. There are some others that I'm not going to go into. But he says this, Jesus, having taken our flesh, has ennobled our nature. I didn't know that was a word. Jesus, having taken our flesh, has made our nature more noble. And I add this, in our minds, that ought to extend value to all humans. 
our nature is now invested with greater royalties and privileges than it had in the time of innocence. In innocence, that is in the garden before the fall, we were made in the image of God, but now that Jesus has assumed our nature and we are believers in our hymn, we are made with one, rather, we are made one with God and we share in his nature. Now you might think that sounds crazy and that's what I thought too. But 2 Peter 1.4 says that we are partakers of the divine nature. Thomas Watson says the angels may be Jesus' friends, but believers, Christians, are his members, his family, his flesh. But this also means something for sinful flesh. Romans 8.3 says that he, was, that he, would, he came, he was created in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was created in the image, or we rather, were created in the image of God and we fell. And, and the image of God was marred and our nature corrupted. But Christ came in that likeness, yet without sin. Because of his work, we can be reborn, we can be remade, we can be restored to the image, as the Bible says, of our creator and our savior. But know and think upon the fact that Jesus came in the image of sinful flesh. That means that, that the life of the human being does not have greater value in the garden, nor does it have greater value once it is redeemed. It means that human life has consistent value. And that means that for Christians, any improper attitude towards the world or people ought to change. We should love those who are far from us, who are unlike us. Are we better than other people because we are Americans? Because of what we do or because of what we have? As Christians, seeing the value that Jesus brings to human flesh by uniting his divine nature to it, remember that, that the original creation is the work of God and Jesus is restoring us to the image of God. We, as believers, we ought to hesitate. We ought to resist, to tremble when we contemplate or approve or do any violence in the world. The officer of the law and the soldier have their good and righteous business, but a citizen ought to take great care in how he views his fellow man. All humans ought to, to view other human beings with great value, but there are those who must protect. And so I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be policemen or soldiers. But we ought to tremble to indulge in violence, to insult to take life, to rush to war, to rejoice in the death of an enemy, to casually comment in any forum positively when someone dies, especially when they're most likely entering a Christless eternity. Since Jesus embraced our human nature, we ought to embrace the rest of humanity with humility. Though it'll be a struggle at times, we need to force ourselves humbly to look at the world not just through the lens of judgment, but through the lens of tragedy when we see the violence and wickedness and pain and hurt and destruction in the world. And that leads me to a very contemporary issue in my last moments as I, as I finish. Think of the 30, sorry, 360,000 people who will be born today. 
In the United States, it's estimated that 3,000 will be aborted. Our hearts ought to be broken and our spirits humbled by this. Think about the value that Jesus brings to our nature and then consider that in the scripture from the moment of the Holy Spirit's action, the Lord Jesus and his mother are treated as separate beings. That's very clear in the scripture. His life is there and her life is there and they are He is dependent on her at the moment, but they are two independent beings. His life is there, and that should be instructive to us. Our society may repeat the mantra that no one knows when life begins, but there are many who say that that is false. Professor Roth from Harvard Medical School says it is scientifically correct to say that an individual human life begins at conception. Dr. Uh, Lejeune, a genetics professor at the University of of Descartes, I was about to say Descartes, but that would be wrong, in Paris, says after fertilization has taken place, a new human being has come into being. Every individual has a neat beginning at conception. I don't think he means like, oh, that's neat. I think he means like, it's very clear when that starts, at the moment of conception. So think about this, this life that's in this passage here. The angel comes and makes an announcement to Mary and an announcement to Joseph about something that's already happened that Joseph has discovered. Upon the angel's angel's announcement to Mary, something we don't understand happens, but immediately there is a rapid growth of of cells as this new human life emerges. His his divine nature is, is united with that life, but there it is, a human being. Five to nine days after that event, this new little person, the little Lord Jesus, not yet asleep on the hay, right, implants himself into his mother's womb's wall for safety and protection. A scientist at that moment, a scientist from today, could have done a test and determined his gender. Fourteen days later, his human features are discernible. At 21 days, they're obvious. At 18 days, his heart and his eyes are developing. At 21 days, his blood is pumping. At 28 days, arms and legs are there. 30 days, his brain is present. He's grown in size by a factor of 10,000. At 35 days, his mouth, ears, and nose are taking shape. At 40 days, if they had the instruments, doctors of that day could have detected his brain waves and heard his heartbeat. At 42 days, his skeleton was formed, and the brain was controlling the movement of his muscles and organs. At 45 days, he weighed only a thirtieth of an ounce, and yet all his internal organs, his mouth, his tongue, the buds for 20 teeth are there. At eight weeks, his hands and feet are perfectly formed. At nine weeks, we've seen this in in videos of of feel surgeries, he would have been able to bend his fingers around an object placed in his palm. A surgeon tells the story of when he was operating on little Samuel Armis, how as he was about to close up the womb, the arm came back out, and before he could move, the little hand just latched right onto his finger, and he stood there in wonder, and he said, in that moment, I realized and never had another question in my entire life that what is in the womb is alive and human. At 10 weeks, 
He was squinting, squirming, and frowning. At 11 weeks, he was smiling. At 12, he was able to kick, turn his feet, curl and fan his toes, make a fist, move his thumb, open his mouth, and bend his wrists. And this is all within the first three months of this perfect little man's perfect life. And so we ask ourselves in the midst of the greatest, I believe, moral debate and divide in our, cult- in our culture today, what was he at that moment? At the moment of conception, what was Jesus? Yes, theology, our belief in the authority of Scripture tells us that he was fully God. But the Scriptures also teach us that he was fully man and fully human. What was he at that moment? He was the God-man, yes. Fully divine, but he was also fully human. And that means that everyone else at that stage is fully human as well. And so seeing that he has brought nobility back to our race, declaring the value of the whole human race and the value of every individual human, we ought to live lives reflective of that value and esteem all lives the same. And that means that our thinking on this matter ought to be clear, just as it is on the matter of our own sin and where forgiveness comes from. We ought to be humble at this stage. Well, to sum up a look, uh, by no means exhaustive look, although it may have seemed exhausting to you, at the incarnation of Jesus helps us understand how he identifies with us and how we identify with him and then how we ought to identify with all other people. We see in the incarnation God's free grace. We see his saving love. The scriptures say in 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay our, down our lives for the brothers. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your incarnation. We thank you that out of the abundance and greatness of your mercy and out of your humility, you took on human flesh. Uh, There is an indignity there because you are the sovereign God and ruler of the universe. And yet there is a profound dignity that you would come to visit us and to take our flesh upon you, to take our image, the image that you created and unite it with yourself. If it weren't in the Bible, we would hesitate to even utter it. But it's there for us to know and to believe. We thank you that you make the human nature pleasing to God and you are acceptable to him and therefore can stand in our place as our as as our perfect sacrifice. We also thank you that, that you show us the truth about the Father who perhaps we can think is angry and difficult and wants only to kill us. But you teach us his heart because he sent you. We also, because you took on flesh, see how we ought to live and to behave. We see the value in all human life and not just in the value of the life of the redeemed. All human beings have this value. And we pray that that we would treat other humans with respect and with kindness and with grace and with mercy and that we would speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. 
Father, we can hardly plumb the depths of this mystery. We can't figure everything out that's going on there. We don't understand everything, but we do know this, that you value human life more than we valued our life. You are the one who made redemption possible. And so we come to you for life. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's not put their faith and trust in this perfect substitute for their salvation, I pray that they would do that now. That they would believe in the work of Jesus on the cross and in his righteousness and then not in their own. And Father, I pray for all of us as believers that that we would live out the implications of this truth that you took on flesh, no matter how it calls us to live, that we would embrace your call and then live that way. Father, thank you for the opportunity to share your word. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.